Psalm 110 this morning. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Father, I just ask You to... To fill this place as you fill our hearts this morning. And Holy Spirit, I invite you to just come in your presence that we would know you're here. And that you would be our teacher today. That you will reveal your words to us. Now let me begin, Lord, by just thanking you for having revealed what we have in Psalm 110. Uh, for these words, for this conversation. For this insight, Lord, this, this revelation is astounding. And so I thank you, Father. I praise you for this. And I just ask that you will help our hearts to understand. Beyond our minds, let our spirits, Lord, bask in the truth of what is presented here today. And we pray that you guide us through this. Lord, in the process, alter us. Make us more like Jesus. And help us to receive you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Away in a manger. No crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. He's so safe there. He's so non-threatening there, you know, baby in a manger, innocuous, you know, unintimidating. That's, that's where I think the majority of people would like to keep Jesus, where He's no threat to us whatsoever. Now, it's important that He came as a baby in a manger. Why? We'll talk about on Christmas Eve. Why He had to come the way He did. But let's get one thing straight, with Christmas especially just a week away. Let's understand something here. It's not the mystery of His infancy that matters so much. It's the majesty of His imminency. It's the fact not that He came as a baby, but that He came to be King. He's not just the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. He's the risen King Jesus who we worship. And He is at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not cute. He's not cuddly. He's not cooing. He is king. And he is commanding. Listen to how John the Apostle described him. Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. It is a king we remember. It's a king we celebrate, a king we adulate, and we come bowing down before in reverence and honor and joy. It's our king, Jesus, who we focus on. And not just this season, but with our very lives. Isaiah tells us a child will be born to us, a son given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Oh, I look forward to that government. I really do. <laughs> And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's one of my favorite lines in Scripture. Ray talked about it last week. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God's going to get the job done. And his passion and his enthusiasm and his excitement over all that he is doing is going to get the job done. So on that night in Bethlehem, he quietly slipped into a manger. No one knew what was happening. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, and lying there, Jesus was born to be king. Now, what I want to talk about this morning is what happened roughly ten centuries earlier. When a conversation was recorded by the forefather of Messiah... I'm talking about David, himself king of Israel. And David overheard a cosmic conversation. David was, was privy. Now, it's not typically um, considered polite to eavesdrop. But that's what David is doing in Psalm 110. He's listening in. He's eavesdropping. He's overhearing an eternal exchange, a divine dialogue. And that's what we have in Psalm 110. So please understand, this is an astounding moment as we come to this place in the Psalms, not just yet another verse or passage. It's a dialogue that David hears. And he writes it down. And the Lord inspires him to do so. Now, some of you may be familiar with the psalm and its meaning. I want you to set aside all familiarity this morning, if you've ever read this before. And come at it as if we've never read it. As if it's the first time you're hearing this. That's what the Lord did with me this week. He had to strip it away because I came with all my theology. And He said, you know what, Rick, Just can you forgive that for a few minutes and let's just see what I have to tell you? And so starting from scratch, that's where I want to begin today. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Now you might notice the Lord is in small caps and my Lord is just has Lord capitalized but it's... You know, your normal little letters there. The Lord said to my Lord, The Lord is Yahweh, in the Hebrew. My Lord is Adon. It's the short version of Adonai. Same word used a little bit later in Psalm 114, verse 7. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob. So, Adon is the God of Jacob. But Yahweh is talking to the God of Jacob. Yahweh says to Adon. Yahweh is God, right? Adon, Adonai, is also God. So is God talking to Himself here? In a way He is. God the Father is talking to God the Son. God the Father is talking to God the Son, Jesus, and I'm going to prove that to you in just a moment. But first, we need to know, when did this conversation take place? Yahweh says to Adonai, so God is talking to God, Father to Son, when? When did David overhear this? Well, that might be simple to answer on the surface. If, if David heard it and wrote it, well then it was a thousand years before Jesus was born, right? Father and Son are having a conversation, David listens in, and that must be then a thousand years before that, so three thousand years ago for us. That's when this conversation take, took place, correct? Wrong. That's not when it happened. Well, okay. Then it must have happened in ancient days. You know, long ago, before David's time. And then the Holy Spirit just inspired him to write down this conversation that had already taken place after the fact. Right? Wrong. (laughs) That's not when it happened. So when did this conversation take place? David overheard this celestial chat a thousand years after he wrote it down. Do you get that? This conversation happened a thousand years after David wrote it. It was after Jesus died, after Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus ascended back into heaven, that Father and Son have the conversation recorded in Psalm 110 a thousand years before Jesus was born. (laughs) What? Doesn't that, you know, there are times in in the Scriptures where you're reading along and you recognize something or something comes to you, the Spirit reveals something, and you're... Do you ever feel the back of your head just pop open? See, I do all the time. Wow! 
how do we know that this conversation recorded a thousand years before Christ actually happened after Christ came? How do we figure that? Well, Peter, inspired by the same Spirit who inspired David to write this, he said the following in Acts chapter 2, verse 34. It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This conversation happened after Jesus returned to heaven, and David was inspired to write it a thousand years before. How is that possible? Gang, such is the stuff of prophecy. And what's astounding about biblical prophecy, and we need to understand this, is it is never bound by time. Prophecy isn't even just that which will take place, and so it's told beforehand. It's that which will take place later, but I mean, it can take place at any time, and it's shared. It's talked about. It's inspired. You know why prophecy works at all? Because God's outside of time. He's not limited by our calendars. We're the clock watchers, you know. We're the ones making sure we have enough time. We're the day timers. We're the time managers. Which is ironic, because who really is a time manager? Who among us has the power to manage time? The Lord alone. But He's outside of that. Outside of time. My sermons never go too long for God. That was a comforting thought for me this week. (laughs) He has all the time in the world. Isaiah 49, verse 9, I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done. And so this divine dialogue in Psalm 110 refers to that time after Jesus has ascended to heaven before He comes back to rule and reign on the earth. But David wrote it a thousand years beforehand based on our time. But Father and Son are outside of time so it really doesn't matter for them. Incredible. And we're just one sentence into this thing. Get comfortable. This divine dialogue in Psalm 110 is one of the most stunning passages in all of Scripture. A hinge point, truly. And it's one that certainly baffled Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. Why don't you keep your finger there and go over to Matthew 22. Matthew 22 in your Bibles. Head to the right. In verse 41. Matthew 22, 41. One of these great interactions, we'll just call it that, between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we're told in verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. (laughs) I just love the way Jesus teaches. If David says the Lord says to my Lord, well then how is this my Lord... How is he the son of David? How does that work? Oh, you teachers of Israel, you wise and learned men, you scribes, you Pharisees, you intelligentsia. How does this figure? And why does Jesus purposefully perplex the Pharisees here? Why does he do that? Because they would not acknowledge his authority as Messiah. A lot of people today won't acknowledge his authority as Messiah. The Pharisees wouldn't. They, they refused to accept who he claimed to be. Bible students, you know what Messiah means? You remember what the translation of Christ or Mashiach, same translation, Mashiach in the Hebrew, Christ in the Greek, what does that word mean? Fire it off if you know the answer. Anointed one. He's the anointed one. Anointed for what? Anointed to be king. Anointed with a royal anointing, an authoritative anointing. Now, any discerning Jew would know 
as Jesus is pointing back to Psalm 110, that he was saying Messiah could not just be David's descendant, but that David, that Messiah had to be David's predecessor as well. Messiah would have to come, if the Lord said to my Lord, and my Lord is Messiah, then Messiah had to come before David as well as after David. An incredible thought. What David wrote prophetically, Jesus fulfilled perfectly. Having come before and having come after. And when I say having come, I'm not saying having been created before because Jesus has always been existent. Has always been. But He came before David. And He came after. (laughs) I'll get there in a minute too. But it was Jesus who says in Revelation 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. If you've never heard this before, what does this tell you about the nature of Jesus, about who Jesus declares himself to be? Jesus is saying without question, not only am I Messiah, but I'm God. If you understand what I'm saying, I'm saying I am pre-existent to David and I'm existent right now. And nobody can be that other than God Himself. Well, let's listen in a little bit more on this holy heart-to-heart. I'm going to give you seven things, if you'd like to take notes, seven things to jot down about the kingship of Christ. And it begins with a royal throne. A royal throne that Father is promising to Son, that Father is declaring over Son as God speaks to God in this cosmic conversation. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. Now, Scripture goes on to tell us in several places Jesus is currently at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He is at the right hand of the Father. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Peter says it as well. That Jesus is at the Father's right hand. So, He's at the Father's right hand. But I want to throw something out, a little curveball for you this morning. In another prophetic psalm where Jesus Himself is speaking, we're told that the Father is at the right hand of Jesus. Not that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me, because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Okay, so Jesus, you're here, and Father's at your right hand, but the Bible tells us that you're at His right hand. What does that mean? Well, physically speaking, I guess that means their thrones are facing each other. I mean, for both to be kind of at the right hand, actually they'd have to be facing each other and off just slightly. Which is cool because it would leave room for another seat right next to them. I wonder who would fill those seats. Well, Jesus would need room for His bride, wouldn't He? As God the Father needs room for His wife. His wife? Israel. Just a thought. Don't want to get too weird on you. But who is at whose right hand? Psalm 16 is a prophecy of the words spoken by Jesus while on earth. Now consider that. On earth, Jesus says, the Father is at my right hand. What does that mean? Well, in Hebrew understanding, it means the unshakable commitment. The right hand man. The one who stands with you. The unshakable promise, I'm with you in this, I will see you through this mission. And the only time God the Father ever broke from being at Jesus' right hand was when He had to be to fulfill the mission. That's when Jesus was on the cross. And for the mission to be fulfilled, Jesus had to be sent. Remember what the passage says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Otherwise, when Jesus walked the earth, God was at His right hand. Full support, full strength. But when Jesus ascended back to heaven, now Jesus the Son is at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110 is spoken by the Father in heaven saying, Sit at my right hand, Son. And now, Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father in commitment to the unshakable kingdom that He is bringing. Have I lost anyone yet? Stay with me. 
The coming kingdom, my friends, cannot and will not be compromised. It is unshakable. Hebrews 12.28 We receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And proof positive of that is the Son is standing at the right hand of the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He, He stands up from time to time. You know, He stood up when Stephen was being stoned. Stephen looked up and said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Why is Jesus standing? Well, I think he was cheering Stephen on. I think he was standing going, Come on, Stephen, hang in there, I'm with you. You're about to come home. It was a, a huge moment. As Stephen would be the first Christian to follow exactly in the steps of Jesus by being martyred for his faith. Jesus at the right hand of the Father. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, Father promises Son a royal throne and Father promises that the Son will bring a royal trouncing. A royal trouncing. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In the days of Joshua, going back a few years, to make your enemy a footstool symbolized their defeat. Their defeat, because they would be under your feet. Listen to this. It's a royal trouncing. Joshua chapter 10, verse 24. Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and they put their feet on their necks. Joshua then said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So this is a picture here. That your enemies be a footstool. You're putting your foot on the neck of the enemy. That's where your foot belongs, by the way. Not because of any strength of yours or mine. Not because of any strength here of Joshua's fighters, but because Joshua said, we have God fighting for us. We have God as our commander-in-chief. See, Joshua had already seen Jesus in one of his pre-existent appearances in Joshua chapter 5 as the commander of the Lord's army. You can go back and look over that yourself. Put on the neck of the enemy. Joshua's commanders. That's that's where we're called to be. But note the word, it's until. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Which indicates that while the blood of Christ completely cleanses us, eradicates all sin for anyone who accepts His pardon, the enemies of Christ have yet to be eradicated. Until. Christ is one. You give Him your life, and you are saved, but there is an until, and we are in that time period right now. That until. When the enemies of Christ still wander around the earth. When the enemies of Christ still are head-to-head with all of the will and purposes of the Father. The Hebrew writer sharpens the point, saying in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 says, In subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. You see, what God is doing here and what He's doing right now in this age is He has graciously locked in an earthly time frame until. We are in the age of until. Why would God do that? For the sake of grace. Because if God made all of Christ's enemies a footstool for His feet immediately after His ascension, none of us would be here the world would not have received the offer of salvation. And countless thousands would never make it home. And so God said, first, we're going to offer pardon. And then we're going to wait until. And these are the days of until. The days of grace. This period of time where we've come to faith in Jesus. I assume most, if not all, of you here. And if you haven't, I hope you do this morning. You're in the age of until. And the Lord is waiting. But this age is fast coming to an end. And if we don't see it in my lifetime, I'll be shocked. The look on my face, if I'm ever put in a coffin, is going to be... (laughs) Can you imagine that at the viewing? Yeah, we went to see Pastor Rick and it freaked us out, man. Because he was like... (laughs) 
<laughs> who are the enemies of Christ who will be made a footstool for His feet? Anyone who does not know Jesus. Anyone who has rejected this full offer of pardon and grace, backed by the full love of the Father. Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus is our last, best, and only hope. Jesus our King. Verse (laughs) 2. We're already to verse 2. Look at that. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. The scepter is that emblem of a king's authority. You can imagine Jesus on the royal throne, His enemies a footstool for His feet, royally trounced, and now He's holding the scepter, and it's a picture for us of a royal tribe. A royal tribe. Good old Jacob prophesied this back in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of all the people. Shiloh? What is Shiloh? Is that another name for Messiah? You know what Shiloh means in the Hebrew? Rest. Rest. Until rest comes. Until rest comes, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Rest came in the person of Jesus Christ. Keep your finger there and, and now go over a couple of books to Isaiah chapter 11. For Isaiah describes... Rest and how He came. And what His coming provides. Watch this. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That word shoot is also rod. So it's, it's, it's barb and shoot, Gilmore, if you will. <laughs> then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Rest will come. Well, that doesn't sound restful. Listen. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. And you know what? No parent is going to come running over there and say, Oh, don't do that! Because the viper is no threat. The cobra does not bite. These are days of rest. Perfect peace on earth. And they will not hurt or destroy in my, all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine an earth full of the knowledge of the Lord? Sharing Jesus with anyone will be unnecessary. Hey, do you know about Jesus? Well, yeah, I was just talking to him. Oh, okay. Because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Rest will come. Shiloh will be apparent. And then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Now, wait a minute. The passage began, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Which means this one is going to come from Jesse, right? Will grow out of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's dad. So, one's going to branch out from Jesse. But now, he's saying, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. One who comes before Jesse. And it's the same person, it's Jesus who comes after and before, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and His, note this, His resting place will be glorious. Jesus Christ, He's born of the royal tribe of Judah. And in Judah's strong, He is Judah's strong scepter. The scepter that will not depart from Judah until rest comes. And Jesus offers rest to anybody who would come to Him. Rest and peace, the peace on earth that the angels sang of on that first night when Jesus was born 
the peace that so eludes our earth, immediately available to those who give their lives to Jesus. And its availability will be worldwide in the day of His second coming. When Jesus will rule and reign in righteousness and peace. Now David continues to report on this kingly conversation and that day is described. Look at verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, which I'm sure is good news for Leslie and children's ministry. (laughs) Your people will volunteer freely. This starts to speak of something and it's interesting because as father talks to son in this holy conversation, the Lord is telling Jesus about his administration. Son, here's what your administration is going to look like when you come to rule and reign. And Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 describes Jesus' administration. Revelation 5.10, Revelation 20, verse 6, those three verses. I'm not reading a lot of these little verses to you this morning because we don't have time, but jot them down and look at them. When Jesus comes to rule and reign as king over all the earth, there's not going to be a two-party system. Hallelujah. And there's not going to be an independent swaying the boat one way or the other. There's not going to be a democracy. It will be an absolute and undebatable dictatorship led and held by Jesus Christ Himself. But He will have a government with 100% volunteers. A people who will volunteer freely, whose work in that government, in that administration, is not based on salary and therefore can be about the business of Jesus as opposed to self. This royal administration, this amazing priestly administration. And again, it's coming right down through this royal tribe of Judah. So hold on to that thought a moment. We're still talking about the royal tribe. But this priestly administration is the saints. refers to the saints of the Lord. Christians, followers, believers of Jesus Christ. Now when I say that, we talked about this a bit on Wednesday night. There are far too many of us who sit back and go, How can I be priestly? Much less a saint. I'm no saint, pastor. To which I always want to reply, I'm no pastor, saint. (laughs) Paul said to the church at Corinth, and I chose this verse because Corinth was a messed up group of people. Filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but about as carnal as a church could be. Doing all kinds of things, accepting all kinds of things. This church of Corinth, and Paul writes to them, and he says in 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified by Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Guess what? If you belong to Jesus, you be a saint. You're a saint. You are made righteous by Christ. We went over this in detail Wednesday night. And you know what? That was a defining teaching, I believe, for the bridge. Psalm 111 and 112. And if you were not able to hear this, I encourage you to go back and listen and study through those psalms. Psalm 111 and 112. How God imputes His righteousness to us and how that causes an intentional righteousness to come up out of us. It's incredible. But Jesus has made us, as Psalm 111 verse 1 tells us, Jesus has made us the company of the upright. A company of saints. A company of of righteous people. And again, even as I say this, I know some of you are going, maybe a few of them, not that guy, and certainly not me. I'm not righteous, I'm not upright, I'm not a saint. Have have you heard the old adage? I asked this midweek. The church is not a sanctuary for the saints, it's a hospital for the sick. Maybe that attitude is why the church is so sick today. Because we come in the door sick. Instead of recognizing we are saints. Instead of recognizing we have been made righteous. We're not righteous in and of ourselves. But we have been made righteous by God. And that should lift our heads a bit. When we come shuffling in off the sin of the week. Just going, oh boy, I'm barely here. Oh, something will happen that makes me feel a little bitter about my messed up life. You're a saint. Own it. Grab hold of that truth. Because if we sit around saying we're a hospital for the sick, we're denying redemption. Now, I'm not saying that the sick aren't constantly invited. Because every one of us at one point or another were the sick before we became the saints. We were sinners who needed Jesus desperately. And so that door, and actually the big barn doors, need to remain wide open to a world of lost sinners to find Jesus just as we did. But when we walk in the door... We're not coming in as sickly, barely hanging on people. We are saints of the Lord. 
do you get how much He loves you? To do that for you? That's who we are. The church, yes, it's a place of healing, but it is also a place of righteousness where the sinner is made right by the propitiation, the complete erasure that comes about by Jesus' blood taking away our sins. All of verse 3 is about the saints of the Lord. Note the next phrase. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. What is this holy array and who's wearing it? Well, number four in your notes. These are the royal threads. The royal threads. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. So before you even open it on Christmas morning, you can just throw away the Christmas sweater with Rudolph on it. You don't need to to hold on to that at all. You have a robe of righteousness. In fact, this year, if anyone gives you an ugly Christmas sweater, just tell them, I've already got something to wear. Thank you. (laughs) Revelation 19, verse 7, talks about the people wearing the robes of righteousness. It says to us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So gang, put it on. And wear it joyfully. It's not the self-righteous acts of the saints. It is the Jesus righteousness, again, imputed to me. And I encourage you all with these robes of righteousness to start breaking them in now. And wouldn't it be a tragedy on, on the day of, of the marriage feast of the Lamb to be uncomfortable in your wedding clothes? What's wrong, man? Oh, I, just, I, just, I haven't worn this before. It's kind of tight and weird. And... Put it on now. Wear your sainthood in Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Be thrilled about. Rejoice in your robe of righteousness. It's been given to you now. It's not waiting for you then. It's been given to you. Fine linen bright and clean. Revelation 19.14 then goes on to say the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean we're following him on white horses and so we need to be comfortable in our outfits because we're going to be riding we're going to be following him in. The holy array. That's the robe of righteousness. But it also says from the womb of the dawn and your youth are to you as the dew. Your youth. Your youth. The root word there in the Hebrew is yelled. Yelled children. Your children are to you as the dew. The holy array, gang, and, and the youth is not belonging to Messiah. It's belonging to Messiah's people. Those who volunteer freely in the day of His power, robed in righteousness, are now the children. Your yelled, or in Hebrew, yeledim, in the plural, your children are to you as the dew. So again, it's not saying Messiah is youthful. What it's saying is His children are. And that's good news for a lot of us. It's better news every day of my life. Your youth, your children. And it says, from the womb of the dawn, they're like the dew of the morning. What exactly does that mean? What's dew got to do with it? You know what it means? It means that we are up with the sunrise. It means in the millennial kingdom, we are fresh as the morning dew, ready to serve, excited to serve, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to go when Jesus calls. Rick, I've got a, a, a job for you on Maui. I'm there, Lord. <laughs> Send me now. <laughs> it means we're ready to go. And that's how fathers telling son, it's going to be in your administration. They're going to be young and excited and vibrant and wearing their robes of righteousness, and everything that's needed to be done will be done, and they will do it joyfully and happily, volunteering freely. They're going to go when you say to go. And that attitude doesn't have to wait until He comes. Why not be that way today? Why not march in joyful volunteerism today for whatever the Lord would ask you to do? Hmm. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another 
and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. This is good, but it gets better. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you don't know who Melchizedek is, you will miss the power of the father-son conversation here in Psalm 110. Paul, uh, Paul, I believe it was Paul, wrote in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then Paul stops, and he adds another sentence. He says, concerning him... Melchizedek, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Paul's saying, I, I want to tell you about Melchizedek. I need to explain something to you and he's the perfect example for this, but I'm not sure if you're going to get it. From time to time, you hear me say Bible students. Bible students, what does the word Christ mean? And it means anointed. Bible students, and I'll ask questions or I'll say, you Bible students know and it's just something I kind of slipped into over the years. And I've been asked this question, Rick, who are you talking to? Do you have a Bible college or something that some people are going to? I've actually been asked that. Do you do special classes? I'm like, so who are you talking about? I'll tell you who I'm talking about when I say Bible students. Everyone who knows who Melchizedek is. He's the mysterious king who shows up in Genesis 14. Out of nowhere. Abraham has just had a massive battle. He's fought and won against five kings. And he's rescued his nephew Lot. And he's on his way back from this great victory, obviously a God-given victory. And as he's coming back from that, this interesting, mysterious king comes out of nowhere. His name is Melchizedek. He's king of Salem. And Melchizedek comes out bringing bread and wine to celebrate with Abraham. He's a priest and a king. He's both king of Salem, but he's also priest of God Most High. And normally you don't see a king and a priest. David was not a king and a priest. He was a king and a prophet. But God keeps those two offices separate because religion and politics do not mix well together. But out comes Melchizedek. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And he was king of a city called Salem, the first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible. Salem meaning peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Abraham falls down before this enigmatic king and worships him. The king brings bread and wine, king of righteousness, king of peace. Abraham's on his face worshiping before this king. Why? Because I believe Melchizedek was the king of kings himself, Jesus Christ. Showing up in the first book of the Bible, meeting Abraham with whom God had a covenant, bringing bread and wine, And Abraham somehow recognized him for who he was and worshipped him. How do you know he worshipped him? Because Abraham gave him a tithe of the entire spoils of the battle. And in this incredible moment, this Old Testament appearance of Christ the Messiah, and and I'll leave this to you Bible students to figure out. Genesis 14, Hebrews 7. Look at the two passages. Compare them. Read them. Come to your conclusion about who Melchizedek is. For my part, I think Jesus showed up that day. We're talking about a royal transcendency, number five. As he says, the Lord to my Lord, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, a royal transcendency, something that transcends all other things, something that's bigger than all other priesthood. King Jesus is our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? It means he transcends the order of Aaron. Not bound by law. Not bound by the Levitical priesthood. Remember, Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. The kingly line. But His priesthood is not limited to the law. His priesthood is not limited just to the Jewish people. The priesthood of Jesus Christ, of the order of Melchizedek, is a worldwide, global, eternal order. Without beginning, without end. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says, It is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests of the Aaronic priesthood, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. 
You see, Aaron's priesthood and the Levites, they had to offer sacrifices every single day. Day in and day out. Blood on the clothes. Blood on the altar. Blood everywhere. Every single day they had to keep offering these sins again and again, over and over. In constant, never-ending atonement. And it was just atonement. What do you mean just atonement? Atonement means covering. That's all it did. It just kind of covered over the sins. Buried them for a time. But those sins would pop right back up. And so they'd have to be atoned for again. Jesus comes along in the order of Melchizedek with propitiation complete erasure of sins in a once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. By the way, this explains the three gifts of the Magi. Gold, gift for a king, frankincense, a gift for a priest, and myrrh, the burial spice for a dead man. And as these gifts were given, I think I've said this before, but if you want to really turn a baby shower dark quickly, bring burial spices for the child. It's <laughs> what they did. Can you imagine being the Magi who got to carry that gift in? I don't, just, I, here. In case you need it sometime, you know. You know what's amazing? Only two of these gifts are going to be given to Jesus again in the coming kingdom. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 6 says, They will bring Him gold and they will bring Him frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. No more myrrh. Why? The myrrh was used. And the myrrh is unnecessary and will never be necessary again because the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace, of the order of Melchizedek, has already used up all the myrrh required in His once for all sacrifice. A royal transcendency. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. How many of you have played the game Plants vs. Zombies? Anybody? Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned it. There's a game that is sweeping the internet right now and, and people have it all over the place and it's, an, it's a hilarious game where you have your house on one side and on the other side is your fence and then the street out there and zombies are coming. And so you have to plant plants in your yard and, they, and they're pea shooters and they shoot the zombies so that you know, their arm falls off and they fall off and they die before they get to your house to kill you. And it's very stressful. And Pastor Rick has been playing it all week. Kill the zombies. Kill the zombies. Kill the zombies. I probably shouldn't be sharing this at all. But here's the thing. I just noticed this. You know, he's going to fill, he's going to judge among the nations and fill them with corpses. But when Jesus does, they ain't getting back up. It's not like they fall down and they go, This is a royal takedown, gang. And when you read verses 5 and 6 and understand the, the picture that's being painted here, it is, it is astounding. And it is a little frightening. And it's probably not the first verse you want to go to when you're trying to explain Jesus' love to somebody. <laughs> Let me talk about Jesus. He's going to judge among the nations and fill them with corpses and shatter the chief men over a broad country. He's going to shatter the kings, verse 5, in the day of His wrath. A royal takedown. And my friends, this is a far cry from little Lord Jesus asleep on His bed. This is not the baby in the manger anymore. This is the royal king who has come back to rule and to reign in all power. Now he first appeared in humility and vulnerability and infancy, but when he comes again, this king Jesus comes shattering in absolute power. And there will be corpses littering the world. And there will be blood filling the land. And please understand, I don't say this gleefully, This is not like you're on your way to see some violent movie. You're like, oh, I hope it's bloody. No. Exact opposite. He returns as the the shattering king who takes out the impotent potentates of the earth with great wrath and astounding judgment. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I say to you this morning, please, please don't wait until that day to make a decision for him. 
whether you're a believer in Jesus, whether you call yourself a Christian this morning or not, don't wait until that day to finally wake up and say, oh, okay, I'll worship Him. Because this is the age of until. And right now, Jesus' hand is outstretched to us in love and in compassion. Well, why, why all the wrath then? Because it is compassionate to let us know what's coming. It is nothing but the greatest of love to say, look, I want you to make a decision. I want you to come to me. Let me love you. Now. Because this is happening then. And no loving parent disciplines without first giving warning. As the Lord does. Verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. And I love this last verse because it speaks not of a royal takedown. It's not the royal throne or the the royal trouncing. It's not the royal transcendency or the royal tribe. It's not the royal threads. It's a royal tranquility. I think what we're getting here in this amazing inspiration, and you might ask the question, why is it? Why is it that God inspired David to write down this divine dialogue at all? Why did He do that? Why why do we have this here? A thousand years before the conversation even takes place, at least according to our time frame. Why does God do this? It wasn't so we could decorate our homes and our barns and churches with Christmas creches. and It wasn't so that we could ooh and coo the babe of Bethlehem. It wasn't so that our holiday season would be filled with mystery and wonder and magic. You know, I really hate the word magic at the Christmas season. Just side note, if any of you send me a Christmas card that has the word magic on it, it's going to be returned to cinder. Magic! May your season be magical! What, is it David Copperfield going to show up? (laughs) It wasn't so we could keep Jesus safely boxed away in the manger where He doesn't threaten us. This revealing conversation happened some 33 years after Jesus was born, but recorded a thousand years before He was born that we might be assured of a royal truth Turn to John 18. We're going to finish there this morning. John 18. A royal truth. John 18 at the end, detailing the end of Jesus' life on earth as He walked among us. And in verse 33, we find Him in the midst of a conversation. He's been beaten. He's been spat upon. He's been made fun of. The Roman soldiers have blindfolded him and punched him in the face and said, Prophesy, who hit you? They've dragged him through the mess of the praetorium. They have brutalized him. Verse 33, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and he summoned Jesus to him and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, understand, that's a political question. Pilate needs to know, is this guy going to cause me problems? Is that what's going on here? It's one of these uprisers. Are you the king of the Jews, he says. And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? I love that answer. What's Jesus doing here? He's probing Pilate's heart. He's saying, are you asking that because you want to believe in me, Pilate? Or are you just playing politics? What's going on here, dude? Are you saying this on your own? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. The word of literally is out of or from. It's not made up of this world. If my kingdom were of or from this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. I'm no political threat to you. That's not what this is about. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. 
For this reason I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Del Tackett in the Truth Project points out in the very first session he talks about truth and he says, look, this is why Jesus was born. I was born to declare the truth. And it's all about the truth. And I think Del Tackett is on track, but I think he stops short. Because he says Jesus is born to declare the truth. What is the truth? What is the truth that Jesus wants to declare? It's that He's King. That's the truth. He is the King. John 18, 37, again, you say that I am King, for this I have been born. And so let me ask you this morning, is He your King? Have you come to Him? Bow down before Him and ask Him to be your King? Are you even now, Christians, are you functioning in the administration of His kingdom? Or are you still away in a manger? You know, Ray nailed it last week. And I hope you heard what he said. Jesus said, John 3, 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The problem is, most of our emphasis remains on the born again and never gets to the kingdom. We, we stay in this eddy, swirling around, trying to figure out our born againness when Jesus is saying, you're born again, and then you move on to see the kingdom. And in the church, and a lot of it is because of our, the focus on evangelism and wanting people to be born again, but we stay right here in the born again world. But where is our emphasis? Is it on our birth or is it on the kingdom? And the problem that the world has is every year the birth is celebrated with no view of the kingdom. And of the fact that the baby born there is king and was born to be king, ruler, authority over all things. What is our emphasis? Is it on our birth? Now, if you haven't been born again, that's priority number one. If you've never given your life to Jesus, that is numero uno. That's where it begins. But listen, that's where it begins. That's not where it ends. It didn't end in the manger. He wasn't born that night and then it was over. For this I have been born. If I'm born again and all of my focus is on my born againness, then my faith is going to remain self centered and infantile. However, if my eye is to the coming kingdom, if I'm learning now how to function in the gracious and loving administration of King Jesus, if I'm not ashamed to wear the royal threads, yes, I am one of those Jesus people. Yes, I am one of His followers. And I'm so thankful. Yeah, I go to church. And yeah, I love church people. I am so thankful to Jesus that I get to be called among His body. And John put it this way, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone, listen, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. For this reason He was born. To be King. Father, it is the most wonderful and astounding truth that the child born unseen, unknown, in that manger was born for this reason. And Jesus, this morning we declare You in our hearts and in our worship to be King. Lord Jesus, King over my life. Ruling and reigning over me and And that means I'm under your authority, Lord. Ruling and reigning, Lord Jesus, as King over this fellowship, over this church, the bridge. And we declare again to you, Lord, that we will not do anything without seeking your will first. Our King. King over your body in the Northwest. Of all believers... 
And we pray that Your authority would rule and reign over the churches, that we would function as You've called us to function. King over this, this entire country, Lord. It's with broken hearts so many of us cry out to You for that. That our country would once again return to You as our authority and as our King. King over this world that is so lost and has forgotten that You so love the world that You gave Your only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is Your kingship that we honor in this season. It is Your rule that we honor with our lives. And Jesus, we pray You would take full control even now until You come when You will rule and reign forever. We love You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship Him together.